Good morning, church. Jared told you to open your Bibles, but not to where, so let's see how many of you guessed correctly. <laughs> open to Romans 1, please. I want to start the message today by telling you about my experience with mountains. Until uh, the mid-90s, my, my experience with mountains was limited to the Poconos, and I had one very short visit to the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. But then on a, on a trip with a music group, I visited Salt Lake City and got to see mountains. And I, I didn't have a category for what I was looking at. It looked painted. It looked artificial. I couldn't believe it was real what was in front of me. I was there for five days. Whenever we weren't performing or in rehearsals, I was somewhere looking at a mountain just trying to take in the grandeur, the, 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 the lighting of the whole thing, that the shadows were even beautiful. Everything about it reminded me of God. Everything about it reminded me how small that I was. And I vowed when I left Salt Lake, I'd never forget what I saw. And until about three weeks ago, I thought I had been pretty successful. But Gina and I just had occasion to visit Colorado Springs about three weeks ago, and I saw the mountains again. And friends, I had forgotten. I had forgotten just the detail and the beauty and the glory of them. I had forgotten those things I vowed I'd never forget. Oh, I knew that it was beautiful. I could name the details for you. But I had lost the appreciation. I had lost the breathtakingness of what I was seeing. And I tell you this story because it illustrates very well what's available to us as a church as we go through this We Believe series. Many of us learned these doctrines that we're preaching through on, in this series. We've learned them a while ago. We're familiar with them. You could say them. But we too frequently rely on prior learned knowledge and we forget the details. We forget the grandeur of God. We forget the glory of God. We forget the things that ought to take our breath away. And we become too familiar with them. And so today, we get an opportunity to revisit the mountain. We've done it so far with Joseph on the Word and with Bill preaching the doctrine of God last week. Today we get to look at God the creator and then we'll take a look at his creation of man and then we'll look at mankind's fall. The world that surrounds us provides teachings, formal or informal, that can blur our view of the mountain. They cause us to think, no, I remember the mountain, but lies can creep in. And we need to be very, very careful that as we learn about God, as we reveal what it says in his word, that we don't evaluate this against the truth of the world's teachings, but we evaluate the world's teachings against the truth of God's word. And so we'll get a chance to do that on a lot of doctrines today that the world loves to teach into. Let's read Romans 1, verses 18 
through 25. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness in men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we seek this morning to take in your glory and to take a close look at ourselves in light of that, Lord, we ask for your spirit to bring illumination, to bring conviction, to bring sanctification to our souls. And Lord, we ask for a focus on Jesus in our own hearts that we realize with every stroke of judgment that falls on mankind, we would grow more and more grateful for the cross of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask your help in all these things. Amen. All right, so this passage that we just read together weaves together the glory of our creator God, the testimony of his creation, and the fallenness of man in light of it. Verse 20 the creation testifies to the attributes of God, preaching his power and his glory, leaving all of mankind without excuse. Just two verses earlier, in verses 18, we're told that we sinfully suppress truth and we exchange truth for error. We think we're being wise, but all the while we prove ourselves to be fools. Again in verse 18, as a result, we're told the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. And then at the end of the passage that we read, verses 24 and 25, God gives mankind over to the lusts of our own hearts. That which is impure, we call pure. We dishonor our bodies and call it freedom and individualism, and honor. That which is a lie in our folly we call truth. And we're still worshipers, but we worship the creation and not the creator. How did we get 
from the sinless and intimate fellowship we had with God in Eden to worshiping the things that God made. How have we drifted so far that God hands us over to our sin? And maybe the most important question, is there any way to fix this? I want to answer these questions in the order that our statement of faith handles these categories. We're going to look first at the creator God. We'll then look at the image of God in man. And we'll end with the sinfulness of man. And as we go through all of this, folks, let's just keep an ear open for the, the teaching that the world has taught on these things. And let's make sure that we're speaking to it with the word as we go through. First, the creator God. Psalm 33, 6 says it plainly. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. In the New Testament, Hebrews 1:10 says, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of of your hands. The statement of faith captures this simple doctrine and says this, as supreme creator, God is separate from and transcendent over all he has made. As sovereign Lord, he is present with his creation to sustain all things, govern all creatures, and direct all circumstances in accord with his holy and loving will. God created the heavens and the earth. He sustains the heavens and the earth. He governs everything he has made and he directs all circumstances. The clouds need permission to rain. The waves get their direction from God on where to stop. Even Satan himself needs permission to do his work. And because God created all things, he is the rightful owner of all things. Isaiah 66, 1 quotes God as saying, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. They are his to do with as he pleases. And no one, nothing, threatens his reign. He's the source of everything that's been made, and he is the rightful object of their worship. Now, I'm making a big deal about God because the Bible makes a big deal about God. And as it does, every time our vision of God gets higher and higher, it has a, a, a death blow against the teaching of the world because it takes the vision of man and lowers it and lowers it and lowers it. The value of all created things, the value of everything God has made is found only in its relationship to God. There is no inherent value in the mountains except that they speak to the glory of God. 
There's no inherent value in the sunset or in the beasts of the plains or the fish in the sea or even mankind itself except that we glorify God. We all derive our value from God and we are to live in a way that brings glory to God. And the world simply will not have that. In its fallenness, the world preaches a God of its own making. First, there is no creator. The world's God is a God of chance. Thus, all matter in the universe has no overseer. The order and the beauty that we see is just a matter of statistics and randomness. The world's explanation is that all of the matter in the universe either created itself or is itself eternal. That is a statement of faith, folks. And here is another part of the world's statement of faith. We believe in no God. Heaven and earth created itself out of nothing. The problem is, that doctrine of God leaves the world in a very precarious place. With no God, there's nothing to determine good from bad, right from wrong, blessing from evil. Society can't survive with that kind of chaos, so the world creates the God of self-sovereignty. If you believe it's right, then it's right. If you believe that it's wrong, then it's wrong. But we can't all pull together in a community, let alone a nation, with everybody simply determining what they believe is right and wrong. And so we leave right and wrong up to the majority. So we have laws in our land. And the laws of every land that has preceded ours reveals something in history. What do we learn when we look at history? We learn that injustice has a tendency to reign. Power determines what's right. The outcast is voiceless and victimized over and over and over again on the basis of race, gender, stage of life, socioeconomic status. You name it, and the majority of any society can persecute it. This is so far from God's design. The statement of faith, of faith captures God's design for all of creation. It says this, in everything, God supremely acts for his glory and for the good of his people in Christ, granting us great comfort and unshakable hope in God's love, wisdom, and faithfulness to us in this life and in eternity. You see, life is supposed to be lived according to God's wisdom, not according to the wisdom of the majority, not according to the wisdom of the powerful, not according to your wisdom, and not according to mine. There's one source of wisdom by which all of creation is designed to live, and it's God's. 
But the world seeks after its own glory and after its own good, standing in direct opposition to God who seeks after his glory and seeks after the good of his people. So let's take this opportunity to turn our attention from God to the people of God, since God acts for their behalf. Let's look at point two, the image of God in man. According to the scriptures, there are only two things in all of creation that God did not speak into existence. Man and woman. Everything else finds its origins in and God said. But when it comes to humanity, God gets very personal. With his own hands, he formed man out of the dust of the ground. With his own hands, he formed woman out of the side of man. And with his own breath, he breathed life into them. The statement of faith says God created man, male and female, in his own image as the crown of creation and the object of his special care. Mankind is made in God's image, the crown of creation as male and female, very personally. But it goes on to say this. Despite the effects of the fall on sinful humanity, all people, I'm going to stop there, all people remain God's image bearers, capable of fellowship with him and possessing intrinsic dignity and value at every stage of life from conception to death. In God's design, there is intrinsic dignity in every human. Think through all the humans you know, and this means all of them. In every human, at every stage of life. But the world's doctrine undercuts the dignity of all human life when they depersonalize creation. Remember, God made mankind with his own hands. They've eliminated the creator in exchange for the impersonal randomness of the Big Bang. With no creator in charge, mankind itself determines if a life possesses enough dignity to be worthy of living. And because mankind is an accident in accordance with that doctrine, it's no wonder the world is so confused surrounding human dignity, gender, sexuality, the humanity of babies in utero, and human relationships. And the statement of faith deals with each of these categories. Let's take them one at a time. Men and women are both made in the image of God and are equal before him in dignity and worth. We can make a mistake sitting here in 2021 to believe that this issue is resolved. 
We make a mistake. Did, didn't we pass the women's right to vote 100 years ago? Well, let's stop for a second. How long did it take us to realize in this nation women should have the right to vote? And in 100 years since, friends, women continue to be judged on the basis of their gender, objectified, looked down on. And go beyond our own society, since this doctrine is true of all times. Go beyond our own society throughout time. This doctrine has been true since Eden. God made Eve with his own hands. But women have been among the more persecuted and victimized groups throughout human history. This is directly counter to God's heart and God's design for women who he made in his image. Next, the statement of faith says, gender designated by God through our biological sex is therefore neither incidental to our identity nor fluid in its definition, but is essential to our identity as male and female. This kind of clarity in a statement like that is so necessary in a day when the world not only seeks to make a person's gender fluid and self-assigned, but seeks to create seemingly countless genders. Friends, God's word is merciful and compassionate, but it is also very clear. The assignment of gender is binary, and it belongs to God alone. And how does he assign gender? He does this through our biology in the creative work that he does in our mother's womb. At the same time, he offers grace and help for those who struggle in this area. And living in a world that's continually encouraging confusion in this area, more and more people are struggling to figure out who they are, what their gender is, what their sexuality is. And so if that's you, I want to encourage you. Seek help from someone who considers this to be authoritative and who will love you patiently and compassionately. And if you're not sure who that is, then feel free to talk to one of our pastors. We would be happy to help. Next, the statement of faith says this. Men and women reflect and represent God in distinct and complementary ways. And these differences are to be honored and celebrated in all dimensions of life. To deny or seek to remove these differences is to distort a fundamental way in which we glorify God as male and female. And this means simply that gender roles are not interchangeable. God calls men to reflect his image in certain ways, and he calls women to reflect his image in other ways. Naturally, there are many, many ways that this overlaps, but Distinctives remain, differences remain. And I could literally take the rest of the sermon to break into that, but I've got much more content to cover. So let me just say this. 
on this topic of roles of men and women, it can be confusing coming from the world's doctrine to the scriptures. So let me encourage you. If this is an area that you're unsure of or you have questions about, make it an area of study. Start with this and go toward the world's doctrine and let this clarify that. Let me just say this in closing on that small point. When we remove the gender distinctives, we do more than fail to serve that specific man or woman. We actually commit a wrong against that man or woman. Because in God's good and loving sovereignty, he has created that man to bring him glory in distinct ways. And that woman to bring him glory in distinct ways. And when we eliminate that, we start to limit the ways that that person is designed by God to bring him glory. So let me do the last thing here in the statement of faith on the image of God in man. God instituted marriage as the union of one man and one woman who complement each other in a one flesh union that ultimately serves as a type of union between Christ and his church. This remains the only normative pattern of sexual relations for humanity. All of those quotes, by the way, are all on one page of that little book. This teaching, this one, two sentences as I look at it, this one quote reveals the error in nearly all of how the world defines sexual expression. It is not enough simply for sexual expression to be heterosexual. It must occur within the exclusive and committed marriage covenant. Additionally, all forms of sexual relations outside of the one man, one woman marriage covenant fall outside of God's exclusive and normative pattern, outside of his design. And brothers and sisters, we know, we know the world preaches a different doctrine. Tragically, in our folly and our rebellion, we have fulfilled Romans 1, 32. If you're still open to Romans 1, just scan down to verse 32. It says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In short, in our folly, mankind celebrates what God says is wrong. In our culture, we make movies about this. We write books about this. We have TV shows that promote this. We teach it to our children. We pass laws that punish those who dare to stand on what God's word says. And now I want to be clear, because hopefully I've been clear thus far on this issue of man being made in God's image, I want to be clear that this is not a call to dismiss the whole of a person. We must, as people who belong to Jesus, be kind. We must be compassionate. We must not reject and judge the humanity of others, regardless of how far from God and his design a person or a society may find themselves, they remain 
image bearers and therefore worthy of our respect. No matter how far they are from God's design, no matter how many sins you feel like you can identify in their worldview and their life, we belong to Jesus and we love the lost. Broadly speaking, the church needs to grow in this area of loving those who are trapped in particular types of sin. However, the honor we give image bearers must still stand on truth. What God calls pure, we cannot call impure or archaic. What God calls true, we may not name, in the name of love, call false. And as our creator, he is the sovereign one who defines what sexuality is, and his sovereignty is good. His word is not ambiguous about these things, so his people ought not be ambiguous about these things. We learned that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But God's design for how we glorify him, how we enjoy him, he didn't give it to us in a vacuum for us to go figure out. He provides instructions for what this looks like. And for those who belong to him, we live joyfully and freely under his sovereign love and governance according to his wise and good design until he takes us home or until he comes back. And let me give a caution here before we go to point number three. The clear teaching of scripture is coming under more and more attack. Friends, decide today where you're going to stand and for whom you're going to live. So, let's take a look at what happened to this great design of God's image in man. Point three, the sinfulness of man. Romans 1, verses 21 through 23, which we've read, it, they lay out in forensic detail what was behind mankind's fall and our ongoing problem with sin. Let's look at it again, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The statement of faith says this succinctly when it says this, in their rebellion, they doubted his character, rejected his authority, and disobeyed his word. Let me take each of those really short phrases. They doubted his character. I marvel regularly at how some of the most educated men and women in our society misunderstand and therefore misjudge the character of God. They assume that the God we proclaim is something like us, or maybe like someone or something they know, or perhaps like something they fear 
or don't trust. Adam and Eve doubted the goodness of God and accused him of keeping something good from them. They got him wrong. They were lied to and believed it. So they rejected his authority. That's the next phrase. They rejected his authority. And listen, this is just true. When you doubt the character of the person in charge, you tend to grab for their authority or find ways to circumvent it. And so when we doubt the character of God, we take the position of God. We rise up and say, I'll be sovereign. Or we find some way to get around the authority of God. Adam and Eve elevated their own sense of right and wrong above God's and refused to follow his clear instruction. Thus, they disobeyed his word. They did what was right in their own eyes and set aside God's word. And because we are descendants from Adam, we have, resident in our own chests, we have the same doubting, rejecting, and disobeying hearts. Now this is a longer quote from the Statement of Faith, but it says so much so clearly. I tried to cut it down, could not apologize. Here we go. From the inherited corruption of humanity arise all the sins that we commit. All people are now by nature enemies of God, living under the power of Satan, subject to the curse of the law, and deserving of eternal punishment. Moreover, the whole nature of man has been corrupted by the fall, and no part of a man is untainted by sin. Although fallen people remain in the image of God and manifest the virtues of common grace, they are incapable of pleasing God, meriting his favor, or freeing themselves from their bondage to sin. Their hearts are hardened. Their understanding is darkened. Their consciences are corrupt. Their spiritual sight is blinded. And their deeds are evil. You know, when you pick up a book and you look at the back cover, you see the biography of the author. It tends to be fairly short, but you see just a little bit about the author. The end of that quote from the Statement of Faith is the biography of the authors of the doctrines of this world. They have hardened hearts, darkened understanding, corrupted consciences, in their fallenness and sin, the world cannot help but proclaim that which is opposed to God. Friends, listen. We must not follow their teaching. They cannot teach what is in accordance with the word of God. It's why James warns strongly and clearly, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. As a result of our sinfulness, in short form, the statement of faith says this, all people are dead in sin and without hope apart from salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, if you could leave that quote up just for a minute or two. 
Take a look at it because therein lies our guilty verdict. Sin condemns us to death and hopelessness. Now, aren't you glad I'm not folding my Bible and walking off the platform right now? That's not where the story ends. But that is our guilty verdict. We can't run so fast to Calvary that we forget what he's delivering us from. We can't go so fast to the cross that the weight of this doesn't sit on us. If we do, it cheapens the cross and it lessens our gratitude. We are dead in sin and without hope. Apart from salvation in Jesus Christ. You can take that down. Thank you. We're going to get to the person and work of Jesus Christ next week, but I want to give you a preview. We are trapped in hopeless guilt, but God intervened and provided a way out. He provided an advocate, a sacrifice in our place. So we don't have to be given over to sin. We don't have to surrender our walk with the Lord to the doctrines of the world. Colossians says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, but more than that, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The world exchanged the glory of God for that of created beings. But God in his own goodness, made his own exchange on our behalf. Second Corinthians says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That great exchange. We give Christ our sinfulness. He gives us his righteousness. God, the creator, reigns and rules over all his creation in wisdom and love. He made us gloriously in his image so that we would glorify him and enjoy him forever. But we rebelled. We saw fit to live in accordance with our own wisdom, calling evil good, calling right wrong, and as a result, we were dead and without hope in the world. But God, being rich in mercy, sent us a savior to deliver us from this bondage to sin and death. You remember, I needed to revisit the mountain to remember the glory of it. The detailed beauty I had forgotten. This morning, friends, God is inviting us to revisit the mountain. Look again at the details of his grace, of his glory, of his character, of his word, of his forgiveness, of his goodness. Don't allow, friend, do not allow, with the power of the Spirit on your side, do not allow the world to pull you into the doctrines of the world and forget the glory at the mountain. Yeah. 
Don't allow busyness to keep you away. Look again. Behold our supreme creator, our sovereign Lord, our loving Savior. Remind yourselves daily that this good news delivers us from sin. And then, don't stay at the foot of the mountain. Go and live every moment of every day like it's true. The result, God will be glorified in our lives and God's people will be happy in him. Amen.